Welcome to the second season of Escape from the Burnout Society podcast. This is a podcast for women and men that want to keep or recover their mental and physical resilience despite all the challenges of our modern society. Every season, professionals of all fields related to stress and health will share their knowledge with you. You will also find valuable free information on www.escapeburnoutsociety.com. So stay tuned. This is your host, Gabriela Guzman. Welcome to Escape from the Burnout Society podcast. I am Gabriela Guzman. I am your host. And today I have an experienced journalist, great communicator and dear colleague podcaster. His name is Anders Bolling. Anders was born in Sweden in 1963 and has lived most of his life in Stockholm, the capital city. He is the author of three books and the titles translated from Swedish into English are the cozy darkness of apocalypse goodbye innocence and the billion boom so months ago anders uh, decided to become an independent journalist speaker moderator and podcaster anders and i met because of podcasting and after listening to his great show that is called mind the shift that's the name of his podcast I thought we had an overlap in uh, some topics and I decided to invite him for this interview. So Anders, you are very welcome. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Well, but, um, Anders, as you know, uh, this podcast is about burnout, chronic stress and uh, well, burnout. And um, well, I believe our society uh, exposes us to really uh, enormous amount of stress uh, and these are all unnecessary and that's what this is uh, escape from the burnout society and um, well, I've been listening to your podcast and uh, you have really great guests you are a very good interviewer <laughs> and so we're also <laughs> going you. to talk about your work as a podcaster um, but um, the first topic I would like to talk about is more related to fear because, uh, well, you have been a journalist. You also know how the media is uh, made and how it, how it's dealing with uh, all kinds of uh, problems in society. Um, but I think it's important to talk with people that can help us to change our belief systems. A mm. And in order to change this belief system, we have to... Um, uh, will be open for uh, many other topics. And you have been interviewing these kind of people that are uh, well all over the place with topics and uh, they are very interesting. But let's go a little bit farther and try to, um, I would like to ask you more about your your book that it's called uh, Cozy Darkness. Cozy. Cozy yeah. darkness of apocalypse. Cozy darkness of the apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. It it sounds cozy indeed. <laughs> it, it, it does. Yeah, I actually stole that that phrase from another journalist who had written that in another context. Uh, we talked about it afterwards, and he, he he was okay with me stealing that phrase for a book title. Uh, so, do you want me to talk a little bit about what it's about and what the title is? about and all that yeah explain us i mean i read a little mm -hmm. bit about it but i think it would be better for you to put it into words for us yeah it's uh, like you mentioned here these books that i've written and i've actually written a couple more books but they they haven't been published so it did depending on how you how you measure this i've 
I've done some more uh, book work here, but um, those are the three that you can you can buy in bookstores. Um, so I wrote this in 2008, and it was published in 2009. So it's it's fairly it's many years back now, fairly old. Uh, and I did it because I, as a journalist, I, I had noted for many years that um, particularly the media, but but generally in in society among leaders and among people in general, scientists, uh, whatever. We were stressing, we were emphasizing the bad things happening in the world all the time. We were putting very, very much focus on the bad things, the misery, the misery in the world. And everybody knows that that, that news journalism is it functions that way. But I guess few people know exactly how it works and how 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 deeply entrenched journalism is in this mindset. But it, it's it's really very much about. Uh, finding the bad uh, aspects of things and finding the misery and and I was uh, already in the 90s I was I was uh, searching for uh, I, I shouldn't say alternative facts because then you think about Donald Trump and his associates I don't mean alternative facts but but other facts but facts that that the media actually wasn't conveying so i did find a lot of things and i i also found other books that were describing for instance the environment in in a little bit uh, a little bit differently than the mainstream media where the disaster narrative was the one that was dominating so the one led to the other and i also learned about violence and about war and about poverty and found out that the world was actually quite a bit better than the the media and most other uh, debaters also actually uh, depicted it so that made me uh, want to write this book and i got a, i got a leave of absence for 8 months there so uh, i had this opportunity to write it i didn't take the leave of absence because i because i i i had the book project but because it was for other reasons i wasn't talking about burnout. I, I wasn't actually close to a burnout, I think, but I was pretty dissatisfied with the job that I had at the time. I was working at the largest newspaper in Sweden, which I did until eight months ago. But uh, uh, the, the particular job that I had at that that point was was dissatisfying. I didn't like it. So I, did, I wanted to do something else and there was not, no, no other job opportunity in the pipeline, so to speak, or available to me then. So I asked for a leave of absence just to do something different. And my boss was a nice guy. And he said that, okay, we don't want people who are unhappy at work. So you take eight months off and, and do whatever you want, and then come back and we'll find something. And then I realized when I got that opportunity, I realized, oh, I can write that book now. So I did it. And uh, that was really great. That was the best thing I did I, I did in my career, I think apart from maybe what I'm doing now, but it was really great because I have had never done anything like it before. And it was just, I had this idea to write this book and nobody was telling me what to do. I had no boss. I just, I was just writing for five or six months. And then there was a, a publisher who wanted to publish it. The first, the first publish publishing house that I went to, which was also amazing. You hear these stories about, you know, authors, sending their manuscripts to 20 publishers and they get all these uh, refusals all the time. I, I have experienced that also later, but but then I at that time I actually 
was um, accepted immediately. And the, it was it was great. And then, yeah, the title, it refers to uh, this very human trait that we have, that we, and we don't have to delve into detail, detail about that, but I'm not the only one who, who says things like humans having still are still living with this, you know, lizard brain that was developed thousands, hundreds of thousands of years ago when we were living uh, as uh, hunter-gatherers and there were dangers lurking everywhere around, you know, on the savannah or in the jungle, there were dangerous animals, there were fires, there was everything. So so the, the brain had to be developed to detect danger everywhere. So we have this, we are prone to kind of being drawn to apocalyptic and disastrous stories we are always looking for that. We, we might intellectually understand that, okay, everything isn't bad, you know, and it's probably most things are good, but we never look for that and we never detect that and we never focus on that because it's like if there's anything dangerous happening or if we think there is anything dangerous happening, we just re react immediately. And, and fear is there for us to, I mean, talking about the, the lizard brain and, and all that, it was probably designed for us to be able to, to run away, fight or flight, you know. Either fight the lion or the saber-toothed tiger uh, or flee. Uh, so that was a good thing, I guess, back then. And you can see it in animals today still. I mean, they when they, they're uh, facing a danger, an imminent danger, they, they run away. They get scared, they run away, like a gazelle on the savannah, for instance. But once the danger is gone, they're just completely calm again. Their be hearts are beating normally and they go back and graze, you know, as if nothing happened. But we are, with our modern brains, with our neocortex, which is <laughs> something completely different than, than this lizard brain, we still have that problem that we, 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 see the, we see the danger and we can't really dismiss it, even though, I mean, there is no danger. We we kind of look for dangers all the time, if you know what I what I mean. So that's the title is referring to the 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 cozy darkness of the apocalypse. Means that we have always had, and it, it can be it can be also um, kind of uh, uh, cozy sometimes when we sit around. I can I envisage how people during the Stone Age were sitting around, you know, the 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 campfire, listening to all these stories about all these dangerous animals lurking out there and uh, and it was it's kind of you know you can you can, do, you can see that today as well and you can experience that when you go to see a horror movie and you kind of <laughs> like the the apocalyptic uh, uh, feel of it and then when you leave the cinema you're you're fine again and and children love to hear these these scary stories so so if we can understand that it's only temporary and it's not really dangerous, then it's not a problem. But the problem arises when we don't understand that the danger isn't real, that it's just in our heads. Then we have a problem. Then we can kind of uh, build... A, 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 yeah, we look for problems and we see problems everywhere and we dismiss all the millions of wonderful and positive things that happen all the time. And they just go unnoticed. As journalists, uh, you can tell uh, us uh, that, uh, you can affirm this, but I've heard that positive news are actually no news. Nobody's going to buy yes. 
newspaper full with That's good news. Yeah, good news is no news, as they say, and and it's terrible. But I, there are there are some journalists and editors who are starting to see things differently now and are starting to realize that this has become a problem. So I interviewed actually early on on my podcast a guy, a Danish guy, former editor in chief, uh, Ulrik Hagerup, Ulrik Hagerup, and he has started the so-called Constructive Institute. And so he quit working as an editor and started this Constructive Institute where uh, they are uh, striving to create what they call constructive journalism, which is a wonderful thing. So I think, I think it's a really brilliant idea. And uh, I, I think the more uh, newspapers and TV stations and radio stations that follow that kind of principle, the better, because this is what, what's this, what it is, is about. It, it, it's, it's not about having positive news just to have like an alibi for all the bad things, you know, at, at, so something to have in the mix to, to make people feel good. Because the thing is that if you only if you only convey the negative things that are happening, then then, then you are actually spreading uh, a false image of the world because the world doesn't look that that way. If you read only read the papers and watch the TV news, you get a completely false image of the world, and that's that's really bad. And and I think young people in 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 schools today, they don't realize that they're not taught to to uh, handle the media that way. They should actually learn how how the media works. It's not constructive; it's destructive. That's really quite a statement coming from an experienced journalist. Uh, yeah. Listen, it's I, I love this story because um, when I studied communication science, after I I uh, stopped being a graphic designer. And there's where I just started to find out what the media was about. Yeah. And I got well, almost scared of it because it's huge. It's so, it's everywhere. And it's the narrative we are all talking about. It determines mm. the agenda of so many other things. Our yeah. opinions, the opinions of the people we know. And sometimes when I talk with people, here in Holland, I mean, I'm not talking about only Mexico, but where here in Holland, people really think the media are completely uh, objective and that newspapers and broadcasters don't have any kind of, uh, or a very few um, other kind of interests like monetary mm. or politics mm. or, and um, well, I, I was there. I mean, I studied communication uh, science in Holland. And I know that that exists everywhere. It's it's not only a, a problem of one or two countries. Um, no. So tell me, what was the response of the people from your work, from your first book? <laughs> yeah. Yes, the, the the response was interesting. I, I should say though that it's not only about the media. It's uh, it has. It's I think it's been a few years since I read it myself now. But I I, I think it. You might say that it has its focus on how the media works, but it's not really about that. It's more about us not being able to realize that the world is actually better than we think. And 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 it has to point be pointed out that people in general are often very reluctant to accept that 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 things are not going as badly as they thought. It's 
I sometimes hear actually from other journalists also and, and from people in organizations and things that people don't people really don't want to want to have good news. They, they don't want to hear good news. And it sounds crazy, but it's it's a little bit there's some truth to that actually. I uh, interviewed for the book uh, uh, a Swedish author whom I've had some contact with also after and before and he he's he's a, really, a great guy. I, I'm not sure if he's alive any today actually he's, it's he was pretty old when I had contact with him but anyway he wrote those books about India and China about Asia particularly about India and the people of India and how they were developing. And he was there in the 60s and 70s, and he was kind of, you know, left-wing, a radical person, a journalist at that time. And and he wrote about the, the, the deep poverty that was there, which was there. And uh, then uh, he, uh, uh, he came back 25 years later to the same villages that he had visited in the 70s. And the people living in these villages, they were they were much better off. They had concrete floors. They had only you know dirt floors before, and and they didn't even have radios or television in the seventies. They didn't even even know that they were living in India. And now in the nineties, late nineties, they 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 voted in the elections, and um, every other you know little house there had a radio, and they had some even had satellite televisions. They they knew a lot about what was going on, the politics and everything. So. And the children had uh, clothes and they had medicine and uh, fewer were sick. So everything was actually a lot, lot better. Uh, and when he told, well, well, there are two sides to this story, because when he told the people in the village, this is kind of funny, really, uh, <laughs> that um, he showed, he was there with his photographer, the same photographer that was there in the 70s. And he had brought some of the old pictures from the village, from the same village. And they showed these guys, these people living there, 1997 or, or so, these pictures. And show them. Uh, look at this. This these huts. They're really, you know, very simple huts. And there's dirt. There's a dirt dirt floor here, and no um, antennas, no nothing, no parabol parabolic antennas. And they were kind of, you know, looking at. Oh, what is this place? It looks like it's really poor. Where did you? Where did you? Where did you take these pictures? Oh, it was here. Ah, oh, no, 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 no. They said they they didn't believe it. You're joking. Oh. <laughs> that couldn't be here. They really didn't didn't seriously believe that it was in, taken in the same place, and this that shows that people are very much focused on their here and now, and they see their own problems in their lives. And these guys, these people living the, in the village in the late nineties, they were of course um, concerned with um, giving their children a good education, having a good job, and buying uh, maybe they they wanted to buy a, a, a motorcycle because they, that's what they were could uh, dream of affording perhaps and then they didn't have enough money for that so they were kind of unhappy that they didn't have enough money to buy a motorcycle they didn't realize that just 25 years before that people in the same village didn't even have bicycles or even shoes and they they couldn't really they couldn't realize it and then when he this uh, author uh Lasse Berg, his name is when he held lectures about his books in Sweden, he talked about these things, the, the, the development in, in Asia, the incredible development, uh, in particularly in India, but also China, of course. China is even more striking, but, but uh, this author was more uh, knowledgeable about, uh, he knew more about India. 
Then he said to me that sometimes when I talk to people about these things, when I lecture, I look out in the audience and people don't look happy. They look a bit, you know, almost a little bit sad because I, I have showered them with so many positive stories about what's happening in the, in the poor parts of the world. So then sometimes people raise their hands uh, when, when there's a Q&A at the end and they say, yes, well, this all sounds very nice, but aren't there any problems in the world? <laughs> and then he said, he, he said, oh, then I normally talk about the things that I actually am a, a bit worried about, namely the, the environment and climate change and things like that. So I say, well, there is the climate change. We really have to take that seriously. That's nothing. And then there was kind of a sigh in the, in the audience, relief, you know, <laughs> oh, finally, he says something that is a problem. But it's, I mean, I think you can recognize it. It's, we are crazy. We don't want to hear good stories. We want to hear the problems. So I think journalists are, I mean, they, they have this, there is this journalistic agenda, or if you call it that, or uh, dramaturgy that is kind of set in the walls there in every, in every uh, editorial room, in ed every news desk. Uh, but journalists are also ordinary human beings with this mindset that most people have. So we focus a lot about the problems, but I think it's a good thing that we once in a while realize that, oh, maybe it's not as bad as I think, so I can relax a little bit. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> when I, um, this in September last year, I was interviewed by a Dutch newspaper and um, I talked about- Yeah, my I remember that, that was nice. Yeah, and uh, I was very excited about it. And uh, I think, Look, there was two stories, mine and someone else that um, I got to interview. She, her stories are also very interesting. And when I was interviewed, I didn't know what this, this article was really going to be about. They only told me that they wanted, they had some, um, they had an in, an, uh, research uh, that said that the conclusion was that there were already so many people with a lot of stress and because of the mm. corona crisis they this could be the explosion of burnouts you yeah. know so when i read the article the final version i i got like wow if if this these numbers are correct the the corona crisis is going to be nothing in comparison to what's going to happen with the burnouts really yeah. i thought yeah. you know what's a burnout you know what it yeah. is to be months in bed completely like driven by a car and then you cannot do anything if you put 4 million people because that was the numbers they were talking about they four million would be, in, in, in the in Netherlands Holland. only? yes oh. it's potentially potentially there would be like uh, 4 million burnouts uh, if mm. the, there were no enough measures to change the you know the situation of the workers and so I've, I, I did my research. I feel like I'm so curious to know if it's true. So, and when I made this research, yeah, of course, there was uh, uh, some information that was uh, supporting this, but the actual number was much less, would be like 600,000. Yeah. And okay. this, which yes, is this, a lot anyway. Which is a lot anyway. I mean, it, it is something to be taken seriously, but it's nothing to do with 4 million people because there's almost half of the population in Holland that is working. 
There are 9 million mm. people working in Holland. If you put 4 million people in a burnout, you have a big problem. Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't, if you start thinking about it, it's not really f plausible. <laughs> no, all. no. And, uh, but you get but that, that in the, the news. The journalist, yeah, yeah. The reporter wrote this and uh, well, didn't the, check the numbers, then obviously. Well, the thing is that, of course, in the moment of the corona crisis, there's so much information about uh, the, the levels yeah. of stress, but you can never know because this, this has never happened before. So you don't yeah. have a, a zero point to, to, mm. to, to start off because you mm. don't know, you know, this is new. The base. Yeah, the no base, baseline. Exactly. Yeah, no baseline. That, that, that's actually 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 uh, one of the ma main problems with news journalism. Exactly this, what you're talking about now. That um, I don't know if the word is discount. We discount uh, misery, but we take it out in advance, so to speak. We we we. I shouldn't say we because I'm not in that business anymore. <laughs> but journalists, uh, kind of, you know, uh, you we, we better write about the disaster before it happens because it might never happen if you see what i mean so we write about it now because there is a risk there is a threat potential threat and that's going to draw a lot of readers a lot of listeners and we can make a fantastic headline out of that and we can always find two or three experts who will say these things and there are 20 experts who will say no 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 that's not likely it's not going to happen don't listen to those listen to those two guys who says this is going to be so bad. It's going to be a disaster. Five million people could die from this. Can you understand that? And then we write the, I'm not we, sorry. <laughs> the, the reporters, the journalists, they write these headlines and they say these things in radio and on radio and TV. And, and uh, it just sounds terrible. And then the next week, you know, or the week after that, it turns out that, oh, well, they checked the numbers and, uh, you know, this and that didn't happen. And it's probably not, probably not going to be that way. So that's no story. And they, I mean, there, there, is, there isn't a, a correction story that is just as big, you know, oh, it wasn't like that. Sorry, we exaggerated. Because there's always a threat. There's always, when the old threat has subsided, there's always a new threat. There's always a lot of threats about war. If, I don't know if you've noticed that, but there are actually fairly few, a few no number of wars going on, fewer wars going on now than there used to be. There was a, a, a spike a few years ago, but it was still much below the levels of the 70s and 80s and early 90s. But anyway, the number of wars has gone down and stayed down fairly much uh, well, we don't have to go into detail about that. But anyway, there's always a lot of threats about war. You can see it's almost comical. There's a threat of war in this and that country because, I mean, the opposition is in conflict with the government. And, oh, there's a threat of war because between this and that country because they have a tension. There's a threat of war in the South China Sea. There's a threat of war between, the North, between North Korea and the United States, between China and, and Russia. There's a threat of war. And, okay, once... Every once in a while, I mean, in, in 10 of those threats, there might be actually some fighting going on. Like when fighting erupted in Ukraine, which was a bit surprising to many people, but there was a war. So yes, can happen, but there are so many threats, 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 and, and, and threats of uh, pandemics and threats of uh, diseases and threats of this and threats of that. And new viruses. And most of them. 
<laughs> new viruses, and most of them never materialize. You know, so it's uh, that's really a big problem because it's like if we don't write about it now, it might never happen, and that's no fun. <laughs> and uh, yeah, of course, yeah. Well, this takes ex- yeah. <laughs> this is exactly what takes us to this this uh, concept of fear and what you were saying about the gazella. It's, it's it's after all this happens, she goes or he goes back to eat, and mm. that's it. Everything yeah. was for nothing. They don't get stressed out. They don't get stressed out, but we do. We yeah. do, and it's the it's the, it's it's like it adds up. You know, it, it's the war there plus the war there plus the coronavirus threatening. They have now new coronaviruses that are mutating and then, yeah. and then the economy. And there are so many things. So when I talk to some of my friends, I they they send me also a lot of, of, of uh, news from different papers or digital magazines. And mm. well, I can tell them most of the times I'm not really very into it because I just decided not to consume news anymore. Not to mm. be not, you know, if, if I need to know something, I will look for it. But yeah. it's very different when you look for something than when it's it's put into your brain. When you are actually want to to relax, to have a nice evening and watching a movie, and then suddenly you get all this coming out of the television. You know, yeah. it's like in Holland. I don't know in Sweden, but the 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 journal is at eight o'clock. And I know yeah. families that would stop eating to watch the news. I know, yeah. <clears throat> I think it's common here too. But, well, people don't normally eat that late. But anyway, same principle. Yeah. So, so and, and I think, well, why should you just stop eating from... Because most of the time you will get bad news. Yeah. I think it's You will maybe- get almost only bad news. And it's it's like people still don't get get it i mean they don't understand that the news is produced by human beings who have made a selection of uh, uh, they have they have picked up a few snippets of what's happening in the world and and made a news stew out of it and serve you and it has nothing to do with reality what's going on out there it's i mean almost nothing of all of the things that are going on with the 7.8 billion people out there in the world is never conveyed in the news, never. And you know that if you start thinking about it, because when you go out for a walk or you meet your neighbors and you talk to your neighbors about their dogs or you plant some new flowers or you go buy food in the shop or you meet a friend at the cafe or at the bar and have a beer and have coffee, not in these times perhaps, but you know what I mean. And I mean, those things are what's happening all the time. It's This is life. This is exactly what life is. And this is what's happening 99.99% of the time to 99.99% of the population. And that's not in the news because it's not considered interesting. And I've, I've been debating this with uh, editors that were, were critical towards my book. I, oh, sorry, I never answered your question about how it was received. But there was there was some debate about it. And uh, I was in the radio on the radio a couple of times, for instance. And, and at, at one time, one instance, I, I was in a debate with this other guy, this other editor who defended the way the news media works. And he said, oh, well, you know, people think that everything, if they don't hear otherwise, they think that everything is fine. They, they, they have this, uh, 
their baseline, so to speak, is that everything is fine. And then there is some something that's uh, breaking that pattern. And that's what we are doing. So, so he didn't realize that people actually take what the news is, is conveying as, as the baseline, as, as the world. He didn't understand that or he didn't want to understand it, maybe. Because I think, uh, as you say, that's was that what you were referring to when we were talking about baseline? No, that was not the same thing. But anyway, well, it's not about the same thing. But yeah, well, that that news that when the news is telling you is how the world is. That's what your friends think, isn't it? This yeah. is how the world is. Yeah, that's yeah. what it is, and uh, and so, it's not. It's not. No, I mean, look, um, I think this stress is uh, um, that we're getting from the media. That is what I do. That's why I say it's unnecessary. Mm. It's unnecessary because how necessary it is for us to be aware of what you're talking about, uh, threats that might never happen, but mm. already put us very, you know, alert, like, oh my God. And then, you know, every time I see this, this news coming from the news, uh, from the journals in, in Holland about, for example, uh, it's, of course, it's, uh, it's the, the example of the day, the Corona crisis. Then the next day I see me, people on uh, outside with, with masks. And then after a few days, everything is going better. And then you see people taking off the masks, you know, you're like more relaxed. And then the sun is shining and the people feel like, oh, we're going into the summer and things are going to get better. And then something else happens. There's a new uh, mm. uh, <laughs> mutation. And then people put again their mask outside, you know, in the bright new fresh air. Yeah. Um, so I think like, well, it, it comes from there. People are, are not imagining this information. They're getting it from somewhere. It, yeah, it does. And, it, and it's, it's actually not, I mean, you can't say that it's, it's not happening. Of course it's happening. The virus is here and, and everything, but it's like, uh, there's a constant 24 seven ongoing storytelling that has to be, it can never stop. It's like, it's, it's like, a self-playing piano we say in Swedish. I don't know if that's an expression in English, but it, it, it once it's started playing, it can never stop, it seems. Uh, so, and, and also the, the government and the authorities, they're all in, they're all in, in the same same play, you know, they're all yeah. playing together. It's, it's like a dance. I described it once as a kind of dance, especially between politicians and journalists, because they thrive from each other. Uh, it's, it can seem like the, the journalists are attacking the, the the politicians and criticizing them, but and they are to some extent. But they are never never questioning the whole narrative or the whole system or the whole structure, which they are all a part of, because the politicians need the the media to write about certain problems. There we are again. Problems has to be problems in order for people to uh, vote for these politicians in the next elections because they they tell the voters that I'm the only one who can fix this. I realize that this is a big problem. I can fix it. I mean, they also never talk about uh, what the normal harmonious life really is about because that they don't think that that will give them any votes. So it's a, it's a dance. And uh, I don't think that journalists or politicians generally uh, actually realize this, uh, not consciously anyway. Uh, they think that they, I think they think that they are doing their job and they are opposing each other, but they're really it's a symbiosis between between the two categories. Yeah, 
because this is a yeah this is dance of mis- the dance around the misery story the story of misery <laughs> <laughs> well let's stop uh, stop talking about misery and uh, <laughs> before uh, the audience gets really very sad let's talk about yeah. your show let's talk about your guests uh, just okay. listen mind the shift you started with mm-hmm. this podcast and um Well, I've been listening to some of your uh, interviews, not all of them, uh, but some of them. And I, I thought, what we were just talking about that we have some overlap. There are some things we, for some people, we have both interviewed without knowing it. Yes, yes, without knowing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that's, that's funny. Um, but from these interviews, I mean, first, I would like you to explain us what Mind Shift about. And the mm. second, of course, is what are from these interviews, what, what has been the most striking for you? Because, of course, you have have lots of different kind of uh, guests, but yes. if you could explain that. Yeah, sure. The scope is very broad. Uh, and so just to to back up a little bit, I can, I can uh, explain that I was working as a journalist a- until May of last year, and then I took a leave of ab- leave. Of absence again to, to do this to start this podcast i didn't know then at the time or I, i i think i knew deep down but i didn't say it out loud that i was gonna quit my job but i eventually decided to do that in the in, in the fall so i quit my job at this big swedish newspaper and because i i had felt for many years that i shouldn't work as a journalist i mean you you you've heard me criticizing so much about the news uh, about news journalism so it wasn't really Uh, viable for me to do that. And I can also add that I have, like you, cut down a lot of my on my uh, news consumption because I think it's not healthy to listen that much to the news. I, 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 I look at the paper newspaper that I get in, uh, every morning uh, and then every two evenings or so I watch... Uh, a little bit of the, the the news shows and and then I watch the weather. I love watching the weather so because I'm a weather nerd. So that's enough for me. And as you say, if I want to know what's happening, I can I can check it up myself or I I I get a, a notification. So I did that and then um, what I wanted to do was to to create a podcast. I had this to make the story a little longer. I two and a half years ago Uh, began some kind of an awakening uh, process, a uh, spiritual journey together with my wife, who is now my ex-wife, but still my best friend. So we started that journey together and it started becoming a little bit more spiritual. We had always been that, but our kids were now grown up. So we had the possibility to, the opportunity to go a little bit deeper into that. And we we decided that we wanted to give each other more freedom and uh, And still love each other, but but we live in different departments and and, and all that. Uh, and in that process, I I realized that I have to change things in my life. I need to stop working as a journalist. And what should I do instead? And then I had some kind of epiphany when I saw um, Brian uh, Rose, who who was leading the the podcast course that both you and I took last summer. I saw a, an ad that he did on YouTube, I think. Where he was promoting this uh, this course, podcasting course, and I just had this epiphany. I I realized, yes, this is what I need to be doing, or something 
similar, something like that. I want to talk to interesting people about interesting things, deep things and societal things and whatever, uh, without having any bosses telling me what to do or what headlines to write. Just having interesting conversations. And I realized that I'm probably not going to get rich from that, but still, I need to do something that I really like to do and, and that I can learn a lot from as well. So that's what I did. I, I, I took this course uh, last summer and uh, learned how to, how to do, uh, make a podcast and how to broadcast and um, came up with the name. Uh, actually, a friend of mine, uh, an ex-colleague of mine, uh, came up with this particular name. I knew I wanted to have the word mind in it and possibly also shift so i was playing with you know shifting minds or mind shift but they were all taken but this is a play on words mind the shift uh, which was not taken so it's unique and it's a play on words which means that there is a shift in the world happening that's my conviction uh, not everyone is is uh, uh, sure about that uh, not everyone agrees, but I think most people can see that one thing in particular that I often stress or emphasize is that the world is integrating for the first time completely, which has never happened before. So we know in real time what is happening on the other side of the planet, and we can have contact. We all know that thanks to the internet, we can stay in touch with people all over the planet. And this is something new. This has never happened in recorded history, I mean, there might have been civilizations before that we know that we don't know anything about. But uh, and I'm open to that <laughs> possibility. But anyway, as far as we know, this has never happened before. So that's a shift, and I think that does things to us. This integration does things to humanity. It's, it changes our way of looking at things, not least how we handle. Uh, environmental problems and societal problems and political issues and everything that we can see that we we we, we are together that everything is uh, connected and this shift uh, also uh, leads to or goes in parallel with a shift in our minds so our minds shift individually and collectively as the world uh undergoes a shift so that's hence the name mind the shift and so that is uh, uh like uh, the baseline for all the um uh, guests you have how do you yeah. choose your guests i mean because the topics are yes. really very different i know and that's the problem because i i know I'm, I'm i'm a bit too broad in my scope and i have this is my problem i've always been interested in too many things at the same time and i i know i that. love to have yeah, these you know this the, the big picture, the broad uh, brush strokes. That's what I love all the time. So I, I want to talk about the whole thing all the time. But that's of course <laughs> very difficult to market, to promote. If you want to like market your podcast, this is a podcast about. Uh, wait a minute, <laughs> it's about everything. <laughs> well, not really, but but I tried to pinpoint more or less the things that I was talking about right now, uh, just now, you know, uh, that the world is integrating, so it's shifting, and our minds are shifting, and let's talk about that. And this entails, of course, in itself, that it can be about eco eco economy and politics, 
and different societal things. Health issues like like the things that you're talking on about in your podcast, uh, but also a lot about uh, and and this is something that I kind of uh, delve into more and more the the border between science and spirituality, and I say that also in my intro episode that I want I really want to span that border uh, between science and spirituality. I, I think there there can can't really be a border. I think in 200 years, we will have scrapped that strange idea that we should separate uh, spirituality from science. So that's really, really interesting. And actually, in a way, the podcast could, of course, be all about that. But uh, so far, I have have caved in, (laughs) or what's the word, to my... my, my, um, it, my other interests as well, and my desire to to delve into things like uh, money and things like uh, what's happening in the on the political arena and things like that. So, so, um, but generally, I don't want to talk about politics or or economy in the the traditional sense. I want to talk about it in a more uh, philosophical sense. So, if I talk to someone about economy and how it works i i ask questions like why do we have money do we actually do we really need money can we organize society in a different way uh, so i've been talking about specifically that thing uh, with several of my guests and from uh, traditional economists like andreas berg swedish uh, uh, economist whom i knew before uh, to uh, a very interesting South African called Michael Tellinger, who has this very, very, some perceive as hokey ideas about humankind and where we come from. I think I think he's he's a brilliant guy and, and a very nice guy who has some really, really fascinating and mind-blowing uh, ideas uh, about where we come from. But he also has uh, elaborate ideas about organizing society. So he has started... Uh, what he calls One Small Town. It's a project, uh, an organization which has, which uh, whose goal is to, uh, yeah, to organize, to create a society starting with small towns, small uh, communities where people organize things uh, in a different way than, than traditionally in our matrix society where all these entities, you know, control our lives. And this the, the general idea is that that people who live there should do these things together. So it sounds maybe a, a, a bit gullible to some, but uh, I think that he's onto something and he's convinced that if he starts in a small scale, this can uh, eventually gain uh, traction and and more followers. And so uh, so the, the eventually the the goal is also to to. Um, to create a society where we don't need to use money anymore. And, uh, and oh, the origins of money is really, yeah, really, really interesting concept. Yeah, and that we are not aware of. That's also something that we don't learn. No, we think it's self-evident. Money, of course we need money. Like, of course we need newspapers. Of course we need, no, we don't, we don't, we, we should, I think we should question most things. And we don't have to question it in an angry way. Because that doesn't solve anything. We don't need more polarization. That's not the solution. But I think we should, in a curious and loving 
uh, hopefully, way uh, question most of our structures because it's not self-evident. Yeah, and can, and if you could choose two two people from all the guests you've you've got interviewed until yes. now, yes, Tell it's me. it's it's difficult to pick two only. I have written down a few here, and I mentioned Michael Tellinger, which is one of the one, one of the people I really enjoyed talking to because it was we really <laughs> a lot of the time up in the blue, you know, and and uh, but that was really fascinating. But also an, another um, Dutchman. I've spoken to a couple of Dutchmen who have been really interesting. Uh, he uh, the the first person I was thinking of here, the first Dutchman. Uh, is a migration uh, scientist researcher called Hein de Haas. Mm -hmm. He was very, very interesting. And he, he knows so much about migration and the causes of migration, the roots of migration, why, it hap why it's happening and why many Western politicians and uh, media in the West have it all wrong. Uh, they describe the reasons for migration in the wrong way. And they also, like we talked about before, they fear monger. So that was really interesting. That was, I think, episode number 20-something. And then uh, I have, it was really interesting and fascinating to, to speak to a Swedish futurist called Karen Ism. I think she has taken that name herself. I-S-M. Her second name Karen is Ism. Ism. <laughs> Yeah, so his first name is Karen. So when you say it together, it's Karenism. Karenism, it's, yeah. I, I think I think it's a play on on words there too, but that's her name. And he was, uh, I'm sorry, she was talking about uh, new ways of organizing, also organizing society. And she her specialty is to dive into uh, governance and how we can govern ourselves better maybe we don't need nation states maybe we can do it in a different way and she had actually uh, just a couple of months before i interviewed her she had stayed two weeks in a, a, a barren deserted area in the himalayas to uh, uh, <laughs> try to create a, a pristine martian environment as if uh, she and and her and the other people who were there. They were a group of maybe twenty people. They were colonizing Mars, the planet Mars. So they they, they were doing this experiment. That what if we maybe fucked up? <laughs> sorry for using that word, Earth. So we had to go somewhere else, or just because we want to ease the pressure on 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 the planet Earth, we go somewhere else and we colonize Mars. How would we do that, and how would we organize society when there is there are no nation states, there are no borders, there are no cities, there are no, nothing. There's nothing. So they tried to uh, uh, re replicate, you know, the situation where you have a base, a space base there, and you live there, and you you have to uh, grow everything yourself, and and just and so that was really interesting. And she talked about how how terrible it was to, to be there for two weeks, and and uh, but she didn't want to. Uh, she didn't want to uh, disclose too much of the, the the findings because she was gonna gonna sum that up in a, some kind of study that was gonna be published. So that was one person. And who else? You said two, but I have to mention a couple more. Uh, uh, yeah, the other Dutchman 
I interviewed just just last week uh, Pim van Lommel, researcher on uh, near death experiences. Really, really fascinating. He he did this huge uh, uh, um, what do you call it? Uh, well, longitudinal study, yeah. uh, but it was also a pro not proactive. That's not a word. Well, anyway, a, a big study over the period of thirteen years or maybe 12 or so, 12 or 13 years, where he interviewed, uh, he and his colleagues interviewed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who had had card, suffered cardiac arrest and whose brains had been flatlined, EEG had flatlined, and, and uh, uh, quite a significant number of those people had had these near-death experiences and where they had been... Uh, um, visiting realms that felt more real than this reality that, you know, you've heard these stories probably that when they come back, they say that this world is the dream and that world where I was, was reality. And in many cases, they had met deceased uh, relatives, deceased family members who had told them things that they shouldn't be able to know because they had been dead for 30 years, but they talked about things that happened just, you know, uh, last year or so. And, uh, Sometimes they also could tell things that happened in the operating room when they were try when the doctors were trying to resuscitate them. So these patients with uh, again flatlined EEG, no brain activity, they were able to tell afterwards what the doctor had said to the nurse and uh, things that they had been using in the operating in um, while operating them and. Uh, where things in the room weren't, and, and well, all, all kinds of details that were are just completely impossible to explain uh, because they were, for all, I mean, traditionally, with traditional science, with a traditional scientific uh, view on these things, they shouldn't have been able to to experience anything because they weren't conscious, but they were conscious in some yeah, other I realm. I read his book. I read his book and yeah, I know yeah. what you mean because he was the first person who wrote the book about, well, actually, who made the research, but he interviewed the people just after it happened. Most of yeah. this research was made with people, they had an NDE and they were interviewed like five, six years after they had the yes. NDE, but he did it after. And then again, like five or six years later, and then again later, because he followed some of these people, of course, who were still alive because some people died uh, of age. And, um, and yeah, it, 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 and this is, this, we're coming again to this place where we're talking about life and death. You're, well, yeah. you're talking also about consciousness, but which, which is our, one of our biggest fears is actually mm. death. Mm. If you if you think like that, I mean, everything determines in our life is determined by the thought that we could die. So if we are going to die, then we have to do something else with our lives. Yes, 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 yes. It, it, it's I think that's the root of a, a lot of human suffering and fear, as you say. Uh, it, it's true. I, I mean, and the. These people that, that Pim Van Lommel and others, Bruce Grayson at the University of Virginia, for instance, and others, have also has also interviewed a lot of these NDE uh, 
ears and the ears <laughs> uh, they these people they they um, almost all of them say that they lose fear of death when they come back after having been resuscitated and having experienced this so they completely change their ways of living they they're not they're they're not they don't get stressed out and they take things a lot more calmly and uh, they can see things in a different perspective so things that they thought were important before are not as important anymore any longer after this experience and of course you wouldn't want everybody to have a near death experience to reach that conclusion or to to reach that state of mind so to speak but i think you can you can you can uh, achieve it by other means as well classic is of course meditation and all that but i think generally it's good to have and that's up to everyone of course i mean this is a personal thing i i personally have always believed that there is that that the physical death isn't the total the, the final death but when i was younger i had a period of maybe 20 years or so when i was i would describe myself as an agnostic, agnostic maybe that's about as uh, as far as i have gone towards uh, not having a belief in in a life after death but uh, for the most part i've i've had this i don't know why it's it's always been there i've i've kind of you know intuitively knew, known that there must be something else because it doesn't make sense if this is if we are randomly assembled flesh robots that's it doesn't make sense at all it's 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 it's, it's to me it's a crazy concept and it goes also together with the idea that uh, i mean try to explain what was before the big bang if if there is only materi materialism if, if matter is all, all there is you you can't explain what was before big bang you can't explain what's outside of the universe uh, and you can't really explain why you are here at all why why can you experience anything where were you before you were born and i mean it's to me it doesn't it doesn't make sense at all there has to be something and what i'm was talking about before the, the border between science and spirituality. This is what I mean that, and connecting this to the research that people like Pin Van, Pin Van Lommel and Bruce Grayson are doing, this is going to be science. I said 200 years from now, I think already in 20 or 30, 40 years from now, I think this is going to be science. I think science is going to talk about the existence of uh, a unified field, for instance, or something, anyway, some, something that, that is beyond the physical, which makes it more natural for everyone in the end to think that consciousness doesn't die when, when the physical body die, dies. And, and it's difficult for us, of course, to know exactly where we are going and exactly what happens, but it, I, I think it can be comforting to many people to know or to be sure that there is something else. I'm probably here to learn. Uh, this is a school. And I'm also here to learn from failures and mistakes and also problems that happen. And then when you see it that way, you can handle your problems easier, I think. And then, of course, we are human beings. So we get stressed out when there's a lot of, a lot of things happening. It's natural. And I've felt it myself. Uh, so I guess you talk a lot about on your podcast how to handle that, how to get out of that loop, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you are you're talking about now, uh, and because we started uh, talking about Pim from Lomo, 
I read his book uh, actually already uh, more than half a year ago. And I don't know what was your experience, but it really changed my my point of view because um, for some personal reasons, I always had also this idea that, well, the end was not dead, that there should be something else. Mm-hmm. And um, by reading his about his research, because this is the interesting thing, this is the shift right, you're talking about. This is a shift because yes. now there's research. There are people who are really in a very serious way documenting this kind of of uh, uh, phenomena. Yeah. Yes. And they're getting yes. the results. It's very that, encouraging. Of course. They're confirming what people maybe 200 years ago would say, but everybody would say, you're crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. What exactly. I mean, yeah. this is this is ancient knowledge. And we have dismissed since, I mean, since Newton, Isaac Newton or somewhere around there, when science started to get a grip on society and, and, and we separated science from religion and spirituality, then before that, you know, the priests were the, the top dogs. They were calling the shots. And then when this shift, that, when that shift happened, the scientists were calling the shots and they were the top dogs and they were going to solve and explain everything. And now we're kind of coming full circle, coming back to a point where even science realizes Hmm, we might have missed something. Maybe we shouldn't have, you know, thrown out the baby with the bathwater, which they did. So, because this is not new, this is what ancient texts have told us for thousands of years. But we have, in our modern arrogance, looked at these ancient cultures and even so called primitive cultures as, uh, you know, more childlike and fairy tale like and not serious and we have also seen their way of life as more full of misery than ours uh, ours is more comfortable and modern and theirs is just poor and miserable so that's why our worldview must be superior to theirs which is really arrogant but of course if you read old ancient texts you can you can maybe come to the conclusion that they are written in a way that sound sounds you know, fairy tale like, or they're poetic, or uh, I mean, like the the the, the old uh, Hindu texts, or the uh, the Sumerian tablets, or whatever. You know, the Egyptian writings, and even even Plato actually was writing about these things, but he did it in a different way, I guess. But many of these texts that, or traditions, or even spoken traditions, uh, have been dismissed because we don't understand that way of putting things because in our view it has to be strict and scientific and dry you know so but maybe we should we should we should give it a second <laughs> second chance because uh, and i think it's wonderful that science now is is coming to the conclusion that hmm, maybe this is what they were talking about we thought they were talking woo woo and that they were kind of you know like big children, more or less. But now we can understand that they were actually talking about these things because people have, of course, had near-death experiences all, um, in all times, albeit it was more rare before because it was more difficult to resuscitate people. But uh, Yeah, uh, of course. <laughs> and, and, of course, you cannot be interviewing people in the... In the you have now a hospital, you know, you have a co... A structure yeah. and you have all the systems so you can record all these findings 
And uh, what I thought after reading this book, and I don't know what you think, what you thought about his uh, interview, um, but I thought it, it, it happens so often that it's almost it's almost proof that it happens. Of course, we don't know exactly what happens when people die and they have all these uh, clear visions. But if you would imagine for a second in your life that you're not going to die, I mean, there is going to be a transition. Mm. Just think about it. Go in it, go with it, and live one day like that. What kind of priorities you would have? And then, yeah. and then you feel like I've been living in the wrong way almost all my life. Yes. So I mean, it, the book really had that transformative effect on you when you read yes. it? Yes. Yes, it did. I mean, it, it came later. Wonderful. It came later. I mean, it was not like yeah. the next day, but through yeah. all their experiences, people I also interviewed. And, uh, and I think, look, this, Anders, this, is, this should be on the news. Yeah, this kind of stuff. It's, really, really, yeah. This should actually, be. when his first when his study came out, it was published in the Lancet in two thousand and one. It it it, it uh, apparently it was fairly big in the media. I I I was a bit ashamed to realize that I didn't remember that. I couldn't remember that. It was in two thousand and one, but uh, th there were actually. A few articles in in big newspapers in in in, in uh, many countries, but anyway, yeah, it should be as you say, it should be in the news all the time, <laughs> all the time, and and yes, and not suddenly because of course it's a bestseller, you know, and it, again people ooh, talking about that, oh, that's going to mm. sell, <laughs> you know, publishers are also getting very excited, um, but there was also uh, uh, I remember it was two thousand fifteen or. It, it was just some years ago um, that it was published, uh, um, and I really have to think twice about the name. But it was in the in the magazine Science that scientists couldn't find the relationship between between like, our material brain and all the thoughts we have. Mm. So they couldn't establish where all our thoughts were going to. No. So the brain had its working. It's also like a computer, you know, mm. recording everything. Yeah. So where, where's all yeah. this stuff? So mm. the, 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 the conclusion was, is well, actually, uh, it was not in the brain. Yeah. Our, our consciousness and all the thoughts and everything yeah. we have couldn't be in the brain. I thought. Exactly. Yeah. And he, he, he writes a lot about that in the book and, and others do too. And Eben Alexander, who, who you have also interviewed, has also, of course, written a book about his near-death experiences. And he is also a scientist. He was even a neuroscientist before he had this experience. And, 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 and many, many others are also now reaching the conclusion that, that uh, it's consciousness cannot be in the brain. It's impossible. There are so many evidences for that. And uh, the, the, the analogy that you're mentioning here, I think it's wonderful. You can talk about a computer or a, a transceiver or a TV set or a radio, whatever. If you if you consider if you if you perceive the brain as as such a a machine, it makes more sense because then you can understand that what the brain does is to filter consciousness, which is out there in the so-called field or whatever, all the time, constantly, all the time out there with every knowledge, all the knowledge that 
ever existed. It's it's just there. And we, we couldn't, in this uh, incarnation or whatever you should call it, in our bodies here on earth, in this three-dimensional world, we cannot handle, we wouldn't be able to handle that amount of information. It would it would completely destroy us. We would get become crazy. So we have to filter it. And the brain helps us to filter down what we need to know, what thoughts we need, and what emotions even, I think, we need. But maybe the emotions uh, emerge somewhere else in the body as well. But I, I, I'm not... <laughs> I don't know so much about it that I can tell really what the science is saying about those things. But anyway, it's it's a filter, and it's no more uh, actually no more strange than the fact that the eyes filter reality for us, and our ears, our hearing filters reality because we can hear, as you may know, somewhere between twenty hertz and twenty thousand hertz of sound frequency. That's the that's the the those are the frequencies that we can hear, but we know that there is sound below that and above that. Dogs can hear other kinds of sound. We can't. So that's evidence that that, that the ears, the hearing, filters uh, reality. So it's obvious that we, we don't see reality exactly as it is. It's a... Uh, Donald Hoffman is another very, very interesting scientist who is looking into consciousness, and he's also... Uh, he's written books about it. I, I've never, I haven't read them, but uh, he talks about conscious agents and he also, and, and he doesn't come from the spiritual uh, side of things, but he, he's, he's getting closer to it and he's being interviewed uh, in spiritual contexts and so on, because uh, spiritual uh, types out there, they're <laughs> realizing, oh, this guy, Donald Hoffman, he's talking about this, this conscious and, and, um, Consciousness uh, not being in the brain, we got to talk to him, because it does it does uh, cross the border between science and spirituality. When you when you realize these things, as as you're saying, consciousness is something that we are having outside of the body, and the the, the brain helps us to handle this physical world, this three dimensional world that filters things for us. And when we have thoughts, and even when the memories we have. They're not stored in the neurons of the brain, but the neurons of the brain are the transmitters, the, the trans, transceivers, so to speak. They are the parts, uh, yeah, like you said, a computer. They're helping us to see it. It's like when the computer breaks down or the TV breaks down. Nobody thinks that when the computer breaks down, nobody thinks that the internet just stopped. Everyone knows that the internet is still out there. You just have to take it down. Or when the, the TV breaks, Oh, there's no more CNN or BBC. Nobody thinks that. Everybody knows that <laughs> the, the emission is still going on. So you yeah, just have to, you know, to uh, wire yourself up to these transmissions that are going on. And some people are better than others at, at having, you know, sensitive antennas and can hear things and know things. And I believe that even people who can, as you say, they're uh, clairvoyant, they can see things in the future, or they can perhaps uh, communicate with deceased people. Sometimes they're charlatans, probably, but as I think in, in many instances it's true because they have, I think these people have more sensitive antennas, so they can access these realms of consciousness that we normally don't access. But it's there all the time. And uh, when we die, I think we go back to that 
realm where we came from. And then what happens? That's another story. If we re reincarnate again or whatever, I, we don't have to go into that area. But uh, it's really fascinating. But as you say, if you once you realize or you decide to believe or or realize that you, the real you, the higher self of you, doesn't really die when your body dies. That changes a lot. It does so much to you. It it, it does. You can it does. Live, yeah. And and it um, the is this shift eh, in the science the one who makes you more excited about? I mean, from all the. I think so. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. As you can hear from my enthusiasm lately, uh, I have been actually looking more and more into these things. So I think this is actually what is what is making me tick a lot. But there is also a shift in, you know, how we organize society and how we organize uh, all kinds of things on in the physical world, which is still interesting. I'm not uninterested, disinterested. What's the word? <laughs> uh, but I think the other thing is is bigger and, uh, and and more long lasting and have has deeper will have a deeper impact uh, on us. Well, I think it's also going to, uh, I mean, if this um, will go to the more mainstream narrative, mm. just to tell mm. like that. Um, it will change also the way we look at politics, the, the change the way we organize our societies, because we will yeah, notice. Does, we, mm. Yeah, of course. When people realize, uh, I mean, if it's also explained to us in a more, uh, in a simpler way, way, that we are also being living li lives in the in the uh, burnout society, of course, yeah, yes. <laughs> that, that were being um, created from the, the 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 wrong point of view. Mm -hmm. You know, this point and you talk about. Yeah, I think fear is our biggest enemy. Fear does so many bad things to us, uh, makes us stressed out and makes us unhappy and makes us miserable and makes us sad. Uh, so fear, and, and if fear emanates from the fear of death and then you realize that we don't die, then you can, if you can get rid of that kind of fear, it's you have won so much. And also, uh, I think the millennia old structures we have of uh, societies, I mean, governments, authorities, uh, borders between nation states, uh, all kinds of structures and organizations that are, that are ruling over us, that are ruling, running this society, they, they're probably not aware of it themselves. Most of the people working in these structures, I mean, we're all in a way working in these structures. Uh, or we're we're subject to them. Uh, there, uh, it's operating to a large extent out of fear, also, because if people weren't afraid that they were going to lose their jobs, or if people weren't afraid that they were going to lose their citizenship, or if people weren't afraid that they were going to lose uh, their money, because they were cool with everything, they were just, you know, I love being here. I love being alive. I love meeting my friends and being in love and walking in nature. And uh, it's cool to be here. I'm here on earth for 50, 60 or 100 years. I don't know, maybe 
200 years and it's just beautiful and i don't care if i you know I, I, what i'm tr trying to say is that i think these structures would crumble if people weren't afraid so i think it's 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 uh, it runs our societies run much because of fear the fuel is is fear and it sounds harsh to talk about fear but it's it is a kind of fear because people they're afraid of losing their jobs. They're afraid of losing their money. They're afraid of a lot of things, but we don't really have to be that afraid. We, we shouldn't have that as a driving force. It's, it doesn't drive us anywhere. It just drives us down, down the drain, actually. So I think it's if you, and, and talking about burnout, there's uh, this uh, sense of overwhelm, which I think is, is another way of describing burnout i i guess i'm 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 not an expert but i guess you could say that it's when you're overwhelmed i listened to a beautiful uh spiritual teacher richard rudd whom i hadn't actually discovered until just recently he has this interesting uh, concept of uh, gene codes so he is, he is also combining science and spirituality by uh, his well we don't have to uh, go into detail but you can check him up richard rudd and it's called gene keys and he um, his starting point is the dna double helix the the genes that we have because we all have genes and but what do they do what what's their purpose and it's the same principle as what we were talking about with the brain that the dna itself is perhaps not the physical thing that is creating <laughs> The, the the what we are doing with our bodies or 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 creating growth of the body or whatever but they are the conduits the 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 vessels for the drive the driving force the living force that uh, reaches them from this other realm so when anyway he was saying i'm i'm going too far <laughs> <laughs> in some direction here, but he was saying that overwhelm is one of these gene keys that he's talking about. Overwhelm is one shadow side of one of these gene keys. And he said very, very beautifully explained how we can, if we look at how children handle overwhelm, we can learn a lot from that because when we, when we feel overwhelmed, and we get stressed out and maybe even in the worst case burned out we have this feeling that there is so there's too much there's too much i can't handle it and we have kind of a feeling or a, yes a feeling that we have to kind of uh, be aware of all of these things simultaneously but why the question is why what's the purpose of being aware of all of those things that you uh, feel are coming towards you in your life, why do you have to be aware of them at the same time simultaneously? Look at the child uh, on a playground, a four-year-old child, a three-year-old child, even older perhaps, but mainly these very young children. They're not, I mean, they just arrived on earth. They don't know anything. Everything is just unknown to them. Everything is just a mystery. They don't know anything. They don't know what this, what, what is the sand? What's this little plastic car here? Or there, there's another child coming towards me and there's a, there's a, 
a stick and there's a, I don't know what, a flower and there's mummy and there's a bird. And you can see how they are just picking up things and throw, throwing them away and eating the sand and realizing it doesn't taste very well. So they spit it out and they do something different and they look in the diff another direction and they run here and they run there. So they're, they are completely overwhelmed, but they are playing with it. So Richard Rudd was trying to convey this uh, message that try to look at it as, as, well, it's just life coming at you and you can play with it. You don't have to take responsibility for each and every <laughs> detail that is, as you perceive it, attacking you. You can just play with it and, oh, okay. So here's a friend uh, knocking at my door at the same time as some other person is calling on my phone and, <laughs> and I got an email here and there's a program on TV. Well, I can shut, shut uh, turn off the TV, of course, but the other things I can probably handle if I just take it one at a time and play with it. Okay, well, I don't know what to say now. Maybe, okay, yeah, yeah. you know, if you get my point, it's yeah. it's kind of, don't take it so seriously. You, nobody's going to die if you don't answer that mail or if you don't, I don't know. Yeah, well, that's the thing. We are not going to die anyway. <laughs> that's true. We just realized we're not going to die. So we don't have to worry anyway. Why worry? That's good. Yeah, great. Anders, my last question for you. How do you cope with your own stress? Well, <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I think I, I this overwhelm and play thing is, 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 I just heard it for the first time just recently, but I think it's part of what I try to do, namely to be a little bit more in the moment and take things as they come. Um, you know about Eckhart Tolle, everybody knows about him, of course, and The Power of Now, the book that he wrote. And there is a lot to that. And I have tried lately, last couple of years, maybe to live a little bit more according to that notion, uh, because I can't, I can't control what's going to happen. I, nobody has a clue what's going to happen in two minutes. No Body has a clue and you can get stressed out by that thought or you can feel a comfort and I have decided to feel comfort in that thought I can only do what I can do now and okay I know that I'm going to have two interviews in six hours and I'm going to do this and that but I don't have to think about that now I can plan for it and Eckhart says this very wisely in his book you can plan for that it's good to, to plan for things that you're going to do later uh, in another now moment <laughs> and you do that and when you've done that you can just you know forget about it and and uh, relax in the now moment again you can be completely convinced that you will not forget anything about what you planned that's what I've had problems with before in my life I had this very annoying uh, inkling that I was going to forget things if I didn't think about it and that's really stupid. It's so crazy. You don't forget. I, actually, you forget more easily if you're stressed. Yeah, of course. I yeah, I, I can you. tell you everything about that. It's true. It's yeah. true. You, yeah, you, because... You forgot you, you had... Yeah, well, stress... Uh, yeah, because it, uh, you get a lot of cortisol in your body for uh, maybe days, months, weeks, and that affects the yeah. short-term memory. Okay. So you get forgetful. Yeah, well, that's a, a case in point then. 
So uh, yeah, I've come to that conclusion too without having had a complete burnout. But I, I remember being very, very stressed out when I had one of my jobs at this big newspaper. I was a boss, I was head of the, uh, the news graphic uh, department. And I remember I had this feeling of pressure on my chest. So I had difficulty breathing. <clears throat> and I realized, I was wise enough to realize that it was early signs of something bad going on. So I, then, I, then I try to relax. But then I, have, I meditate also uh, every morning. I try to meditate every morning. I, it, it, I do it almost every morning. Some mornings it's not practically possible, but nine out of 10, I would say. And that helps a bit, quite a bit, actually. I don't have any specific technique or so. I mean, I can try to use mantras sometimes, but most of the time I just try to stop thinking. <laughs> and I can actually, I think I'm pretty good at doing that now. It takes maybe, I, I, don't, I don't look at the clock when I sit there, but I, I would say it takes maybe 15 minutes for the thoughts to stop running around my head or wherever they are, <laughs> the field. Mm -hmm. uh, and after that, it just subsides and it gets calmer and I <gasps> kind of enter some kind of thoughtless stage. You, you might call it the void or whatever. And it's very, very soothing. It's very comforting to just be there. And I just, I just adamantly tell myself before I reach that stage that I don't have to think about anything. Nothing's going to happen if I sit here 50 minutes or, I mean, in total, maybe 45, 50 minutes. Uh, it's totally fine. Nothing. I mean, what can happen? So I have, <clears throat> after having practiced this for a couple of years, maybe, I have become fairly good at reaching the point of no non-thinking. And that helps to, to reset the body and the... The, the state of being. So after having meditated, I normally feel calmer and uh, more focused. And it lasts for a couple of hours, doesn't last the whole day, but it helps. So those are a couple of things that I do. To cope with your own stress. Yeah, well, I also... To cope with uh, my own stress. Yeah, I also um, suggest many people to start meditating since I just can agree with you a lot about this peaceful place where you suddenly feel like, ah, oh, I don't have to go anywhere because it's just perfect to be here. But yeah. you have to allow yourself to be there. You have to allow yourself. That's, that's the thing. That's the thing. Well, Anders, this was a great conversation. We uh, talked about many, many, many topics. And uh, I yes. really want to thank you so much for sharing us about your interviews and your visions um, about fear and uh, well, all the things we talked about, like uh, death <laughs> and consciousness. <laughs> so it, it was really very interesting. I want to thank you a lot. And um, I hope I can travel one day to Sweden and meet you. Sweden, yes. Sweden is not so Please far do. away from Holland. <laughs> I can go to Holland. Yeah, you can. Somehow also. we have to meet anyway. Yes. Yeah. Well, we were Not supposed to meet in all, in uh, London, but I don't know if it's yeah, going yeah, to. Yeah, I know. No, it was first it was postponed until 
I don't know, March this year. I think it's, it's supposed to be in June, but uh, well, oh, I don't, yeah. I don't. Anyway, I don't, I, be, I believe it when I see it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, Anders, but well, thank you a lot. And uh, well, I hope to see you one day in uh, person. Thank you so much, Gabriela. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. And oh, you're sorry. I just want to say something else because Mind the Shift is your podcast. What's your website? Yeah, it's very easy. I have a website, which is just my name, andersbolling.com. So A-N-D-E-R-S-B-O-L-L-I-N-G. Andersbolling in one word, dot com. Dot com. And if people would like to book you for um, like also making interviews or as a moderator, can they reach you through your website? Yes, yes, it's designed that way actually. So it's very new, and uh, it's it says book me, and and you can find uh, a list of things that I can uh, speak about, and uh, I can also take assignments, as you say, as a moderator, one on one calls if people want that. So yeah, it's possible to book me. Okay, great. Well, thank you a lot, Anders. See you. Thank you. Bye bye. Mm-hmm.